never get used to that one. Anyway, so Meg and I are in the dreaded season of what to do about a new or a used car. Uh, we've been talking about this a lot, and you know, there's, there's a lot of different ways of looking at it, right? Do you buy new? Do you buy used? Do you lease a car? There's kind of benefits uh, to all of those. Um, but one thing's become absolutely clear as we've been talking about it. Our expectation of what we're going to get is determinant upon how much we're willing to spend, right? If you're going to spend forty dollars or $50,000 on a car, you're going to expect a lot more than if you spent $5,000 on a hoopty. How many of you know what a hoopty is? Wow, you guys are all smarter than me. I didn't know what a hoopty was till Pastor Kevin showed up, and he was driving a hoopty, and he said, hey, this is my hoopty. That's not actually his car, but that's a hoopty. Now, I don't know if Pastor Kevin knows this, but as I was doing my research on this sermon and really going back and studying, I decided to study what a hoopty was, and I found out that this is also a hoopty. <laughs> and so this is what Meg and I are planning to get, <laughs> mainly because we just, yeah, see how it's working already. We don't even have it, and you're already laughing at us. Uh, yeah, so for the next few minutes, if I mention the word hoopty, I'm not talking about this. I'm talking about that other Yeah, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about a hoopty. So the point is, this has nothing to do with with cars, but the fact that what you're willing to pay for something determines its value to you, right? What you're willing to pay for something is an indication of its value to you. As we were sitting in morning chapel, Meg and I have been doing chapel uh, every morning from 6.30 to 7.30. You're welcome to join us for that throughout uh, the season leading up to Easter on weekdays. But as we were sitting there and we were reading and, and just kind of getting ourselves uh, ready, I began to think about how we as followers of Jesus, me as a follower of Jesus, you as a follower of Jesus, the price that Jesus paid to redeem you. Right? I, I was struck by the fact that, that even the scriptures say, Peter says that it was more than, you were worth more than any earthly amount of treasure could buy, more than gold or silver or all the earthly treasure wouldn't be enough to redeem you. You were redeemed by the blood of the lamb, right? That's a pretty high value. Revelations 5, 9 through 10 says the 24 elders, the four living creatures and the heavenly hosts all saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain. And by the blood you ransomed, you purchased, you redeemed the people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nations. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Revelation is a reminder to us and clearly telling us that we have a high value to God. So here's what I want you to hear this morning. You are not a hoopty, right? You are a Lamborghini, maybe even more valuable than a Lamborghini. And here's the deal. If I were to uh, buy one of these two cars, which for the record, I'm not going to buy one of these for many reasons, but if I were, I'm going to care for this car completely different than this one, right? This one's probably going to get a special space in my garage. I'm not going to park it near other cars. I probably wouldn't drive it even when it's raining outside. It's going to have a whole different level of care. And that's what I want you to hear. If God cares about you so much that he would buy you, purchase you, redeem you, ransom you with the blood of his very own son, he is going to care for you. 
right? He is going to take care of you. So maybe that's all you need to hear this morning is you are not a hoopty, you are a Lamborghini. You have infinite value to God and he paid the ultimate price for you. Let that one sink in. So I'm going to preach on chapter 7 of Revelation. We're actually in week 8 of this series, chapter 7. But one thing's become clear to me as I have spoken to many of you in the lobby and had email conversations and phone conversations. We need to do just a little bit more foundational work. If you remember a few weeks ago, I talked about some keys to understanding Revelation. Well, I'm going to give you some more keys, if you will, to understanding Revelation. And I encourage you, if you have your journals, to write some of these down and to refer back to them each week as you're reading ahead and reading Revelation. They will help you to make better interpretation of the book of Revelation. So there are four perspectives that we need to have and we need to return to over and over if we are going to interpret and understand Revelation and apply it the way it was intended to be applied. And the first of those four perspectives is that it is the, excuse me, the revelation of Jesus. It tells us who Jesus was, tells us who Jesus is. It tells us all that Jesus accomplished on the cross, all that he's going to accomplish. It serves to remind us of the high price that was paid to redeem us. You know, what distinguishes the Christian faith from every other world religion is the free gift of salvation that comes through Jesus. You can't earn your way to God. You can't clean yourself up enough. But the good news is you don't have to. Jesus paid the price to redeem you. So Revelation is telling us the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, the Alpha, the Omega, the second person of the triune God laid down his life to pay the price to reconcile you to the Father. The cross was the ultimate price and it is the ultimate display of love. So Revelation serves to remind you of who Jesus is. Is. It returns to remind you, too, that you are not a hoopty. You are a Lamborghini. Look at your friends in here and say, I have great value to God. Look across at somebody and say, I have great value to God. You do. All right. Revelation. It's a revelation of Jesus, and it is revealing, this is important, past, present, and future events. And the difficulty of interpreting Revelation is quite often those events that are past, present, and future are woven together often in the same sentence or the same paragraph, right? That there is this picture. And here's the problem. If we read Revelation from a future standpoint, this is a book about all of the things that are going to happen, then we miss the application for what we're going through today. It is meant to tell us about events that are happening past, that have happened, that are happening, and that are going to happen. Clearly, there are things that are in the future, the second coming of Jesus being one of those, right? But when you were here last week, Kevin talked about the the first six seals being removed. And when he removed those six seals, we saw war, we saw the false peace, we saw war, we saw famine, and we saw martyrdom. And if the first century church, whom this letter was written to, was reading it, they would be seeing false peace, war, and famine, and martyrdom. It applied to them where they were at. I want to share with you uh, the writer of Revelation, which is John, also wrote 1 John. And he says in 1 John 2.8, children, it is the last hour. It is the end times is what he's saying. 
And as you have heard, the Antichrist is coming. So now many Antichrists has come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. So when the first century church read Revelation and applied it to their circumstances, including what was happened with the, with the Roman oppression, were they wrong in that application? Of course not. We are to live with an understanding that we live in the end times. And the end times is that time between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And Revelation applies to us today just like it applied to the first century church. The letter of Revelation was written to the church in every generation. It is written to the church in every generation to encourage them to stand against the evil and the tribulation of their particular time and to endure and to be lights in the darkness. All right, four perspectives. It's a revelation to Jesus. It's revealing past, present, and future events. And then there's this thing called the now and the not yet. We have the benefit of the scriptures and access to the scriptures and thousands of years of history to show us that prophecy is often unfolded in a now and not yet sort of way. So we have the messianic prophecies, right? And the messianic prophecies tell us that Jesus is going to come, that he's going to establish his kingdom, that he's going to reign on the throne, and that there will be a new Jerusalem. Often when you read those, it's one paragraph or even one sentence. But what do we know? We know that the kingdom of God has come. Right? We know Jesus was right when he said the kingdom of God is at hand. So while the kingdom of God has come, it also hasn't come in its fullest. We have access in a new way to the kingdom of God. So it's a now and not yet. Right? So there's this picture that, re- that reoccurs over and over in the fulfillment of prophecy. Not always, but often in scripture with now and not yet. Okay. Many of the, rev- the things that we read in Revelation are unfolding now, but they haven't fully unfolded until Jesus' second coming and after that. Okay, what else? Last perspective. Revelation of Jesus, past, present, future events, now and not yet, and this one's super important. It is an apocalyptic vision. I encourage you, if you're writing these down in your journals, to write, circle, underline the word vision. We need to approach Revelation more like you would approach a dream than a historical account of events. Let me say it in a different way. The images and the metaphors used in Revelation are used to describe what is reality, but they are metaphors. They are images that are meant to do it. So we know this, like, remember the book of Daniel? I've told you several weeks ago to read the book of Daniel. It will help you. Why? Because it's also an apocalyptic vision. But there's this scene in Daniel where Daniel sees four beasts coming out of the sea. Now, when you visualize four beasts out of the coming sea, at least if you're like me, I see four hideous, monsterish creatures coming up out of the sea. But when the Holy Spirit interprets that part of the vision to Daniel, he says, these are the four kings and kingdoms that will come into power and then will be judged by God. So they'll come, they'll be judged, and they'll no longer be in power. So you can see the the beast, it's not an actual creature coming out of the sea, but it is describing real events that are going to happen by using metaphors, by using images. Now, why is this important? Because if we read it literally, then we get confused by all of the imagery of beasts and dragons and so on and so forth. The other thing that we need to understand is it means that numbers, actual numbers and revelation, more often than not, are symbolic 
and not literal. So these are some of the numbers that you're going to see. It's not all of them, but some of them. You'll see the number 6 repeated often, the number 7 repeated often, and the number 12. When you see the number 6, it's almost always connected to humankind. Think about 666 on the forehead. If you remember from last week, we saw the six different uh, classes of men. So there's this humankind that's represented in six. Seven, divine completion or the whole of creation. Think about the seven days of creation. And you're going to see that number a lot in Revelation. And then 12. This is one of the numbers we're going to see this week. Anytime you see 12 or a mathematical uh, formula of 12, 12 times 12, 144 is the number we're going to see today. It is not meant to be a literal number. It is meant to symbolize the completion or the fullness of what God has intended. And that, intended, and that will make more sense as we go through this in just a little bit. When we read the scriptures, you guys hear me say this all the time, but when you read a passage of scripture, context matters. Context matters. If we don't know what a passage of scripture meant to the, to the first century believers, to whoever that passage was written to, if we don't know what it meant, then we will never know what it means to us. And we need to see Revelation as a letter that was written to seven churches. Now, interestingly enough, there were actually seven churches, and those seven churches represent the completion or the fullness of all of the churches. So it's written to them, also written to us, right? And so when we look at Revelation, we need to apply it to the first century church and then make the application to our own church. Okay, with all of that in mind, Grab your Bibles or your journals. If you don't have a journal yet, again, you can buy one at the information counter for five bucks. Um, But if you're using the Bible under your seat, we're on page 1032. If you're using your journals, we're on page 28. Um, Kevin did a great job last week of talking about the first of the seven, six of the seven seals being broken. And uh, if you're reading through this, it's interesting. It's kind of like God hits a pause button. So we have the six seals being broken, and then all of chapter 7 happens between the sixth seal and the seventh seal. So we are looking at what is going on between the two seals, six and seven, being opened. If you don't mind standing with me, I'm going to read the major portion of chapter 7. So if you don't mind, stand up. Beginning with chapter 1. It says, after this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on the earth or the sea or against any tree. And then I saw an angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had given power to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of God on their forehead. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, there's that number, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Jump down to verse 9. And this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number far more than 144,000 from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne, and they worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressing me said, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for revelation. Thank you for the incredible privilege that we have to live in the era in which we live, where the scriptures are so accessible, where most of us have the ability to sit and read your holy word. Help us to be good stewards of that. Thank you for this series. Thank you for this opportunity for us as a church to dive into this rich letter of Revelation. Though we pray this morning, the same prayer that we pray every Sunday, that people who are here, people who are online watching the service would leave different than they came because they have encountered the living personal God. Thank you that you are a personal God, that you know the hair on our heads, you know us by name, that you speak to us individually, that you speak to us corporately. Lord, I pray that you would speak a word through the worship, through the community, through the message and that we would leave different than we came. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. We're going to do things a little bit different this morning. Uh, I am going to invite you to engage your imagination. I want you to do your best to place yourself in the scene that I'm about to describe. It might even be helpful for the first few minutes of this sermon, of of this part of the sermon, to close your eyes. And just sort of envision what I'm describing. You might want to even imagine yourself sitting in the Mediterranean heat, which could be a good thing considering what it's like outside, right? Just just imagine it's, it's, it's a Mediterranean summer. Maybe you can imagine hearing the hustle and bustle of an ancient Roman city. It's 75 AD, and you are a member of the church in Ephesus. By this point, you have seen the Roman Empire rise to unprecedented power. The Roman Empire had promised peace under their reign and their rule, but the promise of peace has turned into a system of oppression and tyranny. You were being forced or coerced to worship Roman gods, and to even worship the emperor himself. And if you refuse to worship them, you could be arrested, maybe even taken to the Colosseum and fed to the lions. 
everything the oppressive Roman government requires of you seems to run cross-purposes to your faith and your walk with Jesus. At this point, some of your family and friends have been arrested and some of them even killed. Maybe it was your dad, maybe your mom, maybe a brother, a sister, maybe even one of your kids. Because of your faith in Jesus and your desire to walk faithfully with him, you are a social outcast. You can't find work and you are certainly not welcome in the marketplace. Some of your extended family have disowned you. When you read about trials and tribulations and difficulty, it's not hard for you to imagine they're all around you. But this morning, it's a hot summer morning. Imagine sitting in a small stone building, a synagogue with other Jesus followers. And if you gather this particular Sunday morning, there's a stranger in the crowd. You don't recognize the person who's about to present. And they tell you that they've come with a word that one of Jesus' very 12 disciples, a guy named John, has had a vision for your church. As you sit and you listen to this vision being recited or or read, imagine amidst all of the pain, the loss of friends, the loss of a family member, the persecution, the oppression, the words of chapter 7. And this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels that had been given power to harm the sea, saying, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. It's critical to understand as you read Revelation that the seal mentioned in verse 3 is completely different than the seals that Kevin preached on last week and that I'll preach on next week. This isn't a part of the seven seals. Think of this more as like a signet ring, right? Or, or some kind of a way of marking something as your very own possession. This would be similar to you engraving your name on something that was of value to you that you wanted the world to know. This belongs to me. So amidst the the pain that you are experiencing, you began to realize that God is using the trials and the tribulations of this world to call his people to himself. God is actually in the process of marking his believers, his followers, as his personal possession, putting a seal of ownership on each one of them. And here's the deal. This is happening right now. The scriptures tell us that when you said yes to Jesus, that you were given the Holy Spirit as a seal of who you belong to. Remember when I said a few weeks ago, God originates and Satan imitates. Fascinating to me that in chapter 7, we see God 
taking his possessions and marking their foreheads. Some of the passages in Revelation say putting his name on their foreheads, marking them as his possessions. By the time you get to Revelation 13, Satan is marking his people on their forehead, the mark of the beast. God originates and Satan imitates. The seal of chapter 7, it represents protection, it represents ownership, it represents privilege, it represents authenticity. It is literally a certificate of authenticity. Like God is promising that when it's all said and done, you will prevail, that you will stand with Jesus. It's telling you that nothing can snatch you from the Father's hand, that your eternity is secure. Now, this doesn't mean that you're not going to have trials and you're not going to have difficulties. It means that those trials, those difficulties, pair in comparison to eternity with Jesus. The seal is a certificate of ownership. You were bought by the blood of the Lamb. You have incredible value to God. You're not a hoopty, you're a Lamborghini. And because you are of great value to God, God will take care of you. He promises to meet the deepest needs that you have. As we look at this passage, it tells us that God is using four angels in the four corners of the earth. This is not meant to uh, legitimize flat earth people. Again, this is imagery, right? But there are four angels, and they're holding back the full judgment of God until the entire elect come into the fold. Remember, the number 144,000 is not meant to be literal. All of those 12,000s from each tribe is not meant to be literal. As a matter of fact, all the tribes aren't even represented in that list. It's meant to tell us that God is holding back his judgment until the fullness of the people who God has called to come to know him has been there. And nobody knows except for God, what that actual number is. This passage also serves to inform us that replacement theology is just bad theology. Some of you are like, what is replacement theology? Replacement theology says, because the Jews rejected Jesus, we replace the Jews. And so all of the scriptures about Israel and the Jews that were for them now apply to us. The problem with that, the scripture is clear. We are grafted into the original plant. The original plant isn't thrown away and a new plant planted. We are grafted into with the Jewish people. The other imagery that we use is we are adopted into the family. There isn't a new family formed. We are adopted in. And so we have a picture of here of Jews and Gentiles being saved until the full number of what God has intended has been met before Jesus returns. I'm not sure what that is, but it's pretty distracting for me. So if we could turn that off, it would be helpful. Chapter 7 makes it clear, and Kevin talked about this last week. God is holding back his judgment so that those who he's called to know him have time to repent. Jews and Gentiles. Look at verse 9. Verse 9 says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude 
that no one could number from every nation, from every tribe and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. God is the creator of diversity, and God is calling his mosaic into the kingdom. Jesus is using his church, including Grace Community Church, to participate in this divine harvest. That's why missions and mobilization is an integral part of what we do at Grace. That's why we celebrate the mosaic at Grace. It's not our idea, it's God's idea. We get to participate in the fulfillment of verse 9. That's pretty cool. The white robes in verse 9, they mean that, that you are accepted. It actually means that you are welcome at the banquet. The robe in scripture always signifies recognition of position and honor. So think about the story of Jonathan. You remember Jonathan, he was King Saul's son. And there's this moment in time, even though Jonathan was the heir to the throne in in a normal process, right? There's a point in time where Jonathan removes his robe and he gives it to David as a way of honoring David and recognizing David as the anointed next king, right? Think about the story of the prodigal son. You remember that story? When the prodigal son finally came back, the father restores him by putting a robe on him. That robe was a way of honoring him, of restoring him, and making it clear to everyone that he was a beloved son. The white robes remind us that we are valuable and we're precious to God. The palm branches in verse 9, they're a sign of salvation. Remember the triumphal entry when Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem just before his crucifixion and the people waved palm branches and they laid palm branches before Jesus, it was a sign of what they thought was the coming salvation. Now they thought it was going to be a political coup and when it didn't turn out that way, they turned on Jesus, but they were screaming as they laid down those branches, save us now, save us now. It was a sign of salvation. Now the people of God in this heavenly scene are laying palm branches before Jesus, who is our salvation. Place yourself back in the synagogue. Amidst all of your trials and tribulations, you're sitting in that hot, candlelit little room, stone room, and as you listen, your heart pounding, asking yourself, can it be true You hear the words. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white with the blood of the lamb. Verse 15. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. And the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. Imagine amidst your pain, hearing the words of verse 17, for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. The letter of Revelation was intended for every believer in every generation to persevere 
amidst tribulation. It's a call to live lives that honor God because he was willing to pay the ultimate price to redeem you. It's intended to help us persevere amidst a bad diagnosis, maybe the death of a friend or a family member, to persevere amidst the ridicule, maybe even the loss of some of your closest friends because you've stood up for and represented Jesus. It's written to some to stand up for Jesus even at the risk of being killed. I think one of the problems we have with understanding Revelation is it's hard for us to understand it when we live in our American bubble of protection and freedom. This letter reads completely different if you're the persecuted church in China, if you're the underground church in Afghanistan, if your comrades are literally being arrested and killed for their faith. It may surprise you to know this, but in the last 100 years, 26 million documented cases of martyrdom. If you're a math person and you're doing the math, you realize that's over 250,000 people a year for the last 100 years have laid down their life. The revelation of Jesus is about giving us the proper perspective getting our eyes off of our circumstances and fixed on eternity. I want to close with sharing a story. I have a very dear friend, and uh, he has recently been hit with some really painful, debilitating health issues. And as I've watched him, he's handled it with grace and courage and hope. And as we were sitting at breakfast and we were talking, it became crystal clear to me that my friend has a greater opportunity in this season of difficulty to represent Jesus to his friends and his family than when he's in a season of prosperity. You see, no one's really impressed when you say, praise the Lord after you win the lottery, right? It's easy when life is easy. It's hard when life is hard, but that is the witness, My friend has a chance to make God known in a real, tangible way to his family members that are far from him. Truth is, the church has always been at its best when it's afflicted, when it's persecuted. The people who stand strong and courageous amidst trials, they're the ones that the world sees and takes note. They're the ones that point people to others. As I was writing this part of the sermon, I was very mindful of the witness that I have seen and the encouragement I have received from many of you. Amidst your pain and your difficulties, you have pointed me and others in this church towards Jesus. I thought of Cindy Sparks and Paula Smith, Kayla and Kevin Dupree. I thought of Elizabeth Sharon and the entire Sharon family, certainly the Pinars the Roccos, my friend Mike, Ellie, John Nixon, Doug Can, John and Laura Jackson, Tracy Cruz, Mary Lapish, Jackie Wade, Lita Byers, the list could go on. 
but each of you are a living witness for Jesus. And I'm proud to be your friend. I'm proud to be your pastor. My prayer this morning is that each one of us would know how valuable we are to God, that we would feel his love, and that knowing how valuable we are and feeling that love, that we would persevere in whatever difficult season the Lord chooses to take us through. My prayer is that the letter of Revelation, the witness of our community, would keep us focused on Jesus and that we would each finish well in our faith. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this book. I thank you for this season that you have us in as a church. Lord, you are taking us places we've never been. You are taking me places I've never been. You are taking us places we've never been. Help us to be willing to go wherever you lead, even if it's difficult. Lord, help us to understand how valuable we truly are. So valuable that all the treasures of this world could not purchase us. It took the blood of the lamb to be slain. Help that truth to just resonate deep in our souls. Help us to be the people you've called us to be right here at Morassa 994. In Jesus' name, amen. So we have a group of people that pray for you before the service, half hour before each service. If you want to join that group, just meet in the chapel before the services. Uh, when they just listen, what does God want to do? I want to share something with you that I think is really cool. Seven, eight months ago, I'm looking at Stacy because she's going to remember this, over and over, what they heard was there are people within our congregation who are Uh, trying to get pregnant, who are either struggling with fertility or know that they want to have a baby, we want to pray for you. It was like almost every week I get these as a text and I read the text. I'm like, somebody's trying to have a baby. Somebody's trying to have a baby. Somebody's struggling to have a baby. And we prayed and we prayed and prayed. I don't know if you guys know this, but everyone's pregnant. (laughs) There are eight, great. Now, I know it's not everyone, but there's a lot. Both of the worship people on the stage, pregnant one day apart in their due day. It's just, it's, I've never seen anything like it, but all that to say, God knows and God answers prayer. So um, I wasn't planning on saying this, but if you're still one of those people who is thinking about getting pregnant or trying to get pregnant and you want somebody to pray for you, that's great. But this is what they heard when they prayed this morning. There's a young man uh, who's heartbroken and hurting. We don't really know why, but you do. We'd love to pray for you. Young lady who's considering abortion, we would love to be with you and to help you to walk through that and to choose a different path. Uh, There's an older woman who's praying that her adult children will come to the Lord. We would love to join with you in prayer for that. And someone who has some right arm problem. So if any of that resonates with you, whether you're in the room or online, we have a group of people who are trained who will meet you down here and pray privately with you. Uh, If you need something else spiritually, physically, uh, we believe that God is still moving and active and desires to meet you in whatever your needs are. And if you are online, there's two numbers. You can call either of those numbers and they'll put you into a private Zoom room and pray for you as well. God bless you. Uh, Come back next week as we explore what God has to say in Revelation chapter 8. Blessings.